This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Hi, I'm Jeff Gibbard, the world's most handsome social media and content marketing strategist and real-life superhero. And this is my podcast, Shareable. Every week, I get the opportunity to speak with someone brilliant, including entrepreneurs, academics, authors, speakers, researchers, and more. Come along with me as we dig deeply into their unique story of success, including their highest of highs and often their lowest of lows. These episodes are powered by my curiosity about the critical role that relationships and technology play in shaping the course of our lives. These episodes aren't sales pitches. These episodes aren't the standard book tour. These episodes are just shareable. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to let you know about an amazing free resource that you should be taking advantage of. I ran my own agency for seven years, and I know that as a freelancer, entrepreneur, or small business, you want to feel confident that you have all of the skills you need to grow your business, lead your team, and close the sale. But I also know that sometimes, no matter how hard you try, it seems like you can't get ahead. You try to learn how to be a better leader only to find yourself winging it. You know that you have a unique story to tell, but your marketing materials aren't telling it. And the things you need to learn are spread out all over the place, so it can be challenging to know where to even start. And it's for all of these reasons that I created the Superhero Institute. The Superhero Institute is a personal and professional development platform with curated resources, lessons, and strategies to unlock unlimited growth potential and teach you specific superhuman abilities. Your free membership comes with access to the one-of-a-kind superhuman framework, along with a structured approach designed to give freelancers and small businesses the tools for professional growth. Lead your team, tell your story, and close that business. Commit yourself to continual growing, to consistently expanding your skills, and constantly deepening your understanding. It's time that you get more done than you ever have before, and before long, you'll realize that you're just getting started. Become the superhero you were meant to be. Join today for free at SuperheroInstitute.org. On today's episode of Shareable, I speak with Ryan Hawk, who is a keynote speaker, author, and advisor, and the host of The Learning Leader Show, which is a podcast with millions of listeners in more than 150 countries. He and I share a lot of uh, similar interests, so it was a joy to have him on the show. Uh, he's actually the author of a new book called Welcome to Management, How to Grow from Top Performer to Excellent Leader. It's a book for uh, people who have just moved into new leadership roles, which is actually the same target as the book that I'm writing, The Lovable Leader. So uh, for me, this was a really exciting conversation because we got to play in a lot of that uh, new leadership space, kind of what are the things people need to know from day one, what are some of the common pitfalls. So it was uh, a tremendous amount of fun. Ryan's actually a lifelong student of leadership, and he has rose through different roles as a leader. You know, and on one hand, he was a professional quarterback, but at the same time, he's also had roles of VP of sales at multi-billion dollar companies. He's currently the head of uh, Brixey and Myers Leadership Advisory Practice, and he regularly speaks at Fortune 500 companies and works with teams and players in the NFL, the NBA, the NCAA, and um one of the things he talks about a lot on his show is these leadership circles where he offers structured guidance and collaborative feedback to new and experienced leaders. He was a really phenomenal guest. I think you're going to love this episode. Uh, we talk all about leadership. 
um, which it's very rare uh, for me to actually get someone that I can just talk about leadership for the entire episode. But, you know, Ryan's the guy. And, uh, man, if he doesn't know his stuff, then I don't know who does. So uh, I hope you like this episode and um, be sure to share it if you do. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Shareable. Today, my guest is Ryan Hawk. Ryan, welcome to the show. Jeff, thank you for having me, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. So let's start out by uh, tell people who you are and what you do. Um, you know, what's your background, where you're currently working, you know, what's the big exciting thing that's on your plate right now? Gotcha. So, uh, well, part of the reason why we're probably talking is because of my podcast, The Learning Leader Show, which I started five years ago, 350 episodes now. Uh, and that led to a book uh, that I uh, will be published January 28th, uh, 2020. And uh, that's the first written work that I'm publishing through uh, McGraw-Hill. And in addition to that, I uh, regularly are I'm out on the road, keynote speaking at uh, companies or athletic teams, which partially is because of my background in sports growing up, playing all sports and then going to college to play a football. I was a quarterback, graduated from Ohio University and played briefly in uh, the Arena Football League and then moved on to the uh, corporate world where I first got a job working in sales, then was promoted into a management role and promoted a few times after that. Uh, but started my podcast as a, initially um, as a creativity and curiosity project. And that led to me being able to leave corporate America about two and a half years ago. And now it's what I do full time. Dude, that's a really awesome story. Number one, number two, I love the fact that, um, you, I, I was so excited to get on the uh, the podcast and chat with you because I feel like um, I don't I don't know a tremendous amount about you other than you know just some of the information we've exchanged, a little chats that we've had back and forth. But I feel like you and I are, are very much on the same wavelength about a lot of things. So just for anybody that didn't catch that, you said the name of your podcast is the Learning Hero, correct? Or I'm sorry, the Learning Leader Show. It's all good, learning. man. Learning Leader Show. Yep, Learning Leader. Okay. I want to mm-hmm. make sure. That- We'll get a chance to to go and check that out too. Yeah, um, you and I share a profound love of leadership, and this is probably the part that I was most excited when you got referred to me by um, God. Who was it that referred you to me? It was uh, Laura, right? Yeah, LGO Laura yeah, yeah, Gasserotting. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, but she said that you were into leadership, and I was like, "Well, that's cool." You know, I'm writing a book on leadership. Very cool. And then it turns out that the book that you're uh, you've written is a book for new leaders. And the mm-hmm. book that I'm writing is also for new leaders. So nice. typically when somebody comes onto my show and they've written a book, I will read their book or I will at least very thoroughly go through it. But similar to how in the, uh, as some like, I think it was in the early eighties, Robin Williams was all coked up and, and was, uh, you know, doing other people's jokes unintentionally. I didn't want to get into a situation, not that I'm doing coke, but uh, <laughs> I didn't want to get into a situation where I read through your book and it, it makes its way into my book. So I deliberately didn't read through your book the way that I would normally do it because I figured we'll just talk about it here on the show anyway. Um, gotcha, so, gotcha. So, so let's start with why'd you write a book for new leaders? I mean, everybody's writing books about leadership these days. At least it feels that way as I'm writing mine. I'm like, oh God, does anyone even care? But you wrote it for new leaders. I think that's such an important thing. Uh, so, okay. I did it because uh, I did not want to write a kind of a broad-based leadership book. And I thought about the, the part of my life where I made the most mistakes. And that is when I was – so my first role was I was a telephonic sales professional and did well. And what happens typically 
in that world that I was in is that they look at the stack rankings and they take the top two or three people who are at the top of the stack rankings, uh, I mean, the highest performing sales professionals, and they say, okay, we're going to interview you three, and one of you is going to become the next manager because uh, there's an open position. And that's exactly what happened to me, and, and I was fortunate, I guess, in, in, at that time to, to then get the job. However, as a 27-year-old who had never really uh, had a real job prior to that, I had no idea what I was doing because leading in the business world, while there are some similarities to leading as a quarterback on the football field, uh, there still are many differences. Uh, most notably, my very first week on the job, Jeff, I'm sitting in my new office kind of admiring my expensive chair and looking out the window and uh, thinking, you know, I was – I was, I was pretty full of myself and, um, at the, I, I turn around, I see at my door, there is a 43 year old woman who now reports to me and she, uh, has started to cry and she slowly walks in my office and says, Ryan, my husband cheated on me and he wants a divorce. What should I do? And I thought, what is happening to me? Why are you telling me this? This is not what the job entails. Uh, and I learned that that is precisely what the job entails, that now as the boss or manager of people who report to you officially on an organizational chart, all of that is part of being a leader uh, at a business. People will come to you and share more than maybe you thought they would. Um, and so it was a real eye-opening moment for me. And I proceeded to make mistakes over the next probably 12 to 18 months. And so I wrote a book to cover that specific time in somebody's life to help them not make the same mistakes that I made. So there's so much there to unpack. And I'm just going to kind of go wherever... I guess there's just so much there. So, I mean, there's things about age, there's things about boundaries. I guess to start out with, let's talk about the boundaries aspect here because in discussing, that's a, that's a really um, salient first example to give because I think when people think about leadership, they're thinking about goal setting, they're thinking about inspiring and motivating their team. Let's, you know, charge into battle. Mm -hmm. And here you are, you're talking about your first example includes both your managing you know, in an age capacity, you're, you're managing upwards. So now there's somebody who's older than you reporting to you, you're younger, you've got less experience than they do. But the first thing they come to you with is not a business related issue. It's a personal related issue. And there's a question of like, well, where do the boundaries uh, begin and end? And your statement was, that's exactly what this job entails. Unpack that a little bit more for us. How is it that that is a part of the job of leadership is dealing with people's personal issues? So for me as an individual contributor, it was not. I would have never told my boss anything near that personal. And what you learn quickly, though, is that uh, to stop being uh, to, to thinking that everybody thinks and acts just like you. Now, I had 15 direct reports and realized I had 15 different types of personalities and different types of communication styles and personalities that I was uh, there to serve and to help and to lead. And I had thought myopically just about myself leading up to then, because that was all I needed to take care of was, was, was performing as an individual. And now I, I, I quickly learned that everybody is different. Everybody's unique. Everybody has different perspectives and different styles. And I remember I called my dad, who's who's been a leader himself for many years and, and led thousand person sales forces through, for, for decades. And I said, 
why in the world would anybody say this to me? And he said, man, that's, that's part of your job now. That is part of the deal that you're going to have people who are not like you. Um, and it's part of your job to help them. And I, again, I was just caught off guard. I wasn't expecting it. Uh, and uh, I quickly learned though, unfortunately, that was not the last time that exact example, what happened in my career. And uh, obviously that's, uh, it's extremely unfortunate and it's, it's, it's rough and it's, it's real life, but that is why it was important for me to, to publish this in, in, in a book form. Um, in addition to what I share on my podcast, the learning leader show, because uh, it's a different medium for people to acquire information. And uh, we titled it welcome to management because I, I literally want this book to be the one that as you get promoted from an individual contributor to a manager role, they shake your hand, they say congratulations, and then they say, now read this book and get ready. And that's, that was what I was hoping to do uh, with it. And, and, and so far, you know, I'm happy that the early, early reviews have, have been positive. That's dynamite. It's actually very similar to what I wanted to accomplish with the book that I'm putting out is I feel that it's um, your experience sounds so similar to so many people I know that get moved into a management role. It's like, hey, you're good at a thing. Now manage people. Yeah. Now go do something that's completely different. Yeah. I mean, there's a part of it. There's a part of it that's the same. But yeah, there's so there's so there's so many aspects of it that are not there's, there's nothing similar at all. I mean, me being, being able to smile and dial and crush the phones and, and sell a lot had nothing to do with being a kind, thoughtful, gentle listener who could help people. Uh, it, there, there, there wasn't much carryover there. Yeah. Um, and, and your experience of being moved into that role also sounds um, pretty typical. I mean, it doesn't, it, it seems to me that with the you know, there's all of these, uh, we exist in a business world, right? We're in a capitalist society, business makes the world go round, there's companies everywhere, there's hierarchies. But it, despite the fact that this has been going on for, you know, centuries now, that this is how our world and our economy runs, it doesn't seem like we've done a very good job of standardizing how you move someone into the role of manager or leader. There's still so many different leadership styles, there's still so many companies that have absolutely no leadership training whatsoever. You know, why do you think that, you know, you're involved in the world of leadership, you read about it, I'm sure you've studied it and being able to write this book and even becoming a better leader yourself. So all this information is out there. Why do you think it is that we still don't have anything that resembles a level of consistency across companies? I think it is getting a little better, but I did some research leading up to the book with a, a number of leaders uh, throughout uh, America and uh, ones who had been promoted and this, this, some formal, some informal, some via email, phone calls, texting, Skype calls, Zoom calls, everything. And the, the interesting thing about it, though, was I said, what was your training like when you initially got promoted? That was the first question. What did you do? And the responses I got were anything from an eye-rolling laughing emoji and via text message to someone saying, well, I got a binder and a one-day manager boot camp. So the rest was kind of figured out. I think we, we live in kind of a quarter-to-quarter -quarter world, meaning did you make your earnings? Did you hit the number for this quarter? Right? And, and, and that is a, a, uh, not the long game that I prefer to play. That's that's saying, well, we've got to do whatever we can. And and so I think it can be short sighted. Um, leaders can can easily say, let's the, the, we don't have time for training. We have to go hit the number. We got to go do the job. We can train later. And, and, and unfortunately, what happens 
is that then the training never happens. And that's, that's my hope is, is to help alleviate that. And part of what I do for a living now is, is to help with that very specific area if companies want to farm that out and not do it in-house. And so uh, realized, I realized the need for it through my own experience. And I, I had a fantastic boss too, uh, but he still had an incredibly busy schedule. And even though our company was a world-class company, it, it still uh, was underwhelming a bit when it came to training for new managers. And, and so that's, that's, that's the specific area when I said book number one is what I'm going to focus on because I felt the pain of it. And, and unfortunately, the people who worked for me felt the pain of it too. When I got my MBA, I, I had the sense that like businesses had stuff figured out. Like they had it together because like I was a creative and I had started a personal chef service. I was always like chasing passion and I had all of these different reasons why I didn't fit in business, right? So I get my MBA and while I'm there, there are all these people that are talking about net present value and all of these other various financial concepts. And it seemed to me like businesses really had their stuff together. So that's kind of like one thing. Then I get into the world of business and it seems that uh, in many cases, no, they do not. But combine that with the fact that in my estimation, the way that I look at it, I don't actually think that leadership training, that yes, there's a lot of complexity to it. There's a lot of different levels and a lot of different things that you can uh, look at, whether it's goal setting or communication or conflict resolution, all these different things. But I think to just be a much better leader, you could probably train someone in very short order on some of the big things because a lot of them, I think, are communication and um, you know relationship building skills. I mean, do you do you think that leadership is a much more complex um, system than than I guess what I'm I'm putting out there? Because in my world, it seems like it would be very simple for us to do a lot better. Uh, <clears throat> I certainly think those are important aspects of of becoming an excellent leader. Is is certainly the communication side of things. Of I, I think understanding perspective and developing compassion is a big part of the job, a bigger part than I realized when I first got it. So I, I just think that the, that is certainly important. Uh, is it complex? I do think it's pretty complex. Um, if it wasn't, then I think more people would be better at it. Um, unfortunately, everybody listening to this can picture that bad boss or bad bosses that they've worked for. And also, unfortunately, the number of bad bosses versus the great bosses is probably bigger. And that is why the kind of industry that we're in is, is so massive because uh, it's hard to be really excellent because there's so much going on. It's not like people don't want to be great, but they don't fully know how to or they, they don't understand uh, some of the time management aspects when you first get promoted, right? People are throwing meeting invites on your calendar left and right. And before you know it, you're not even seeing your team. You're not even uh, around the people that you need to be with. You're, you're not properly preparing for those communication one-on-ones or group team meetings or even scheduling trainings for your team, which is one of the biggest parts of the role, which is coaching and teaching. So I just think there's, there's, there's a lot to it. And that is why it's easy to become a, a, a conference room jockey or, or just be sitting in meetings all the time because as you get promoted up the chain, there's more and more of that pressure, uh, especially in corporate America. Yeah, I mean, I, I get the complex side of it, especially when you brought up the specific examples of like, uh, you know, scheduling and, you know, lots of meetings showing up on your calendar. And, 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 you know, again, I think that leads to a little bit of a communication breakdown too of understanding what is the person on my team actually need from me. But I think in some cases it's more, it's less that it's complex and it's more that it's like, 
it's hard, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's difficult to put out that emotional energy to sit down and actually understand somebody's perspective about why something may not have gotten done or to be able to understand that something didn't get done and be able to deal with it in such a way that doesn't demotivate that person, but instead gets them to take ownership of it and move forward. I think the, um, I think we've done a disservice in most of the business education formally and informally of not stressing enough, you know, just the, the, you know, that whole expression, it's not personal, it's business. I think we may have been taking that too far. And I think a lot of times what I've seen, at least in, in the most effective management uh, leadership settings that I've ever been in is that it's when you make it personal that you actually resolve it in the most powerful ways. Yeah, it's funny. My dad and I did, did a did a keynote together where it's where the title of it was. Of course, it's personal, um, and and it was in a business setting. I, I think, I mean, you, you're a person and you work w- and with and lead people. So w- whenever that phrase has been said, I I I kind of question because I think life and business and work is built on relationships and relationships happen between people and my favorite and the most effective leaders I've ever either played for as a player or worked for uh, were incredibly personal uh, and they cared deeply about me uh, as a whole person not just my number or what I did at work and so I am a huge believer and if, if we work together, it is absolutely going to be personal. Uh, and the, and the, with my, my primary business partner, Doug Meyer, when we have one-on-one conversations, a, a significant portion of those one-on-ones, we are talking about our family and how we're showing up as husbands and dads. Um, that has nothing to do with our work or the revenue generated by my work. Um, but we think it has everything to do with us as people, and that's really important, and it's meaningful to me, and it's meaningful to him, and so that's why we talk about it. And I think the best leaders get that. They understand that. They don't think, oh, I don't have time for that. They know that that's most important, so we're going to focus on that, um, and that certainly energizes me and makes me feel more uh, ownership and empowered to want to do great work because I know I'm working with people who really care about me. Do you feel that your work in sales gave you a little bit of a leg up in your ability to move into a leadership role? Because you you said something um, just before a little bit along the lines of like, um, you know, like listening for what the the person's needs are, right? And and that's very much something that comes out of being a salesperson that you're like listening for being able to provide solutions, you're actively listening, and, you know, being able to try and provide solutions for that. Do you think that being in sales is a, um, a helpful, or at least a more helpful than potentially other roles uh, to move into a leadership role? Do you think maybe that should be part of a leadership training? When I meet with uh, people early in their career and sometimes college students, uh, some of the final pieces of advice, if they say, you know, what are, what are some final things you'd give? I'd say, learn to sell and learn to speak in front of a group. I think those are two skills that will benefit you in any career that you may choose, learn to sell, learn to speak in front of a group. I think having your first job be one in the world of professional selling where you're going to be trained and you're going to face an immense amount of rejection, uh, where it's going to be really tough. There was, I didn't realize it at the time, but there was no better training ground for me than to be making 60 to 70 phone calls a day and sometimes hearing 60 to 70 no's being rejected and, and forcing me to improve, to get better, to become, as you said, Jeff, a better listener, 
uh, to understand where a person currently was and how my solution could help them get to where they want to go. Absolutely. I mean, life in general is sales. Your career is sales. When you interview for a job, you are selling them as to why they should buy you the candidate. So it's certainly as a leader, you are selling your vision, your thoughts, your ideas, you want people to follow, you have to be persuasive to do that. And none of that means being manipulative. That's having a better understanding, right? Dan Ping wrote the book to sell is human. I absolutely agree. Talked with him in depth about that on my show that that is a huge aspect of uh, really of life in general, but certainly in leadership is having the ability to sell. Yeah, I completely agree with you 100%. Um, I actually have as a as side gig, um, I have an online dating course. And the premise of the online dating course is online dating is online marketing. And I basically use the premise that, you know, dating is basically just marketing and sales. And I think if you look through a lot of different lenses, you could look at leadership the same way that, you know, there's presenting yourself and your brand in a certain kind of way. And then the sales situations are those actual interactions where leadership is taking place. And you're trying to actually, you know, to a certain extent, close that deal by finding a solution that works for both sides of it. So you have an um, online dating course? Yeah, I have an online dating really? course. Really? How, how, how do you come up with that? Like, uh, like for, for Tinder or something? I mean, I'm so far out of that game, by the way. So I yeah, have no so, idea what I'm talking about with I've been married for a while. What, so what's it like? What's that I about? I'm far out of the game myself. Okay. Um, I, was, I got uh, married, my first wife, I got married in 2010. And then we got divorced in 2013. And I had been with her from since 2004, I think it was. So like, I, I knew nothing of online dating. Okay. Uh, so when I got divorced in 2013, now all of a sudden, I was a single guy, I was 33 at the time. And I was like, well, where do people meet? And at the time, like I had my own agency, and I was working obscene amount of hours, to, you know, running my own company. So, um, you know, I didn't have time to like, just go out and you know, online dating was a thing. So, um, so basically the first like six months, I was just terrible at it. I was absolutely awful. <laughs> and, uh, like really I did like everything you could possibly do wrong. Uh, typical guy stuff. And, like uh, what? what did you do? I'm, I'm I curious. did like the shirtless selfies. Cause I lost some <laughs> I was like, Oh, girls are going to like that. And I mean, I, anyway, so I did everything wrong. Yeah. I, uh, just, you know, I did not think of it through the proper lens. And then because, you know, I had an, on, I had, um, a social media agency that I ran for seven years called True Voice Media. And I just had this one day where like I had this epiphany and I was like, wait a minute, this is just online marketing. That's all this is. So I just changed my entire game plan. And I was like, all right, so now I'm basically just going to be marketing myself. So I'm going to do the same thing I would do as a marketer, right? So I'm going to think about who's my target audience. Um, what are the features and benefits that I have to offer? Uh, what are the pain points and problems that they might be dealing with? Um, what are the things that I bring to the table? Let me be clear about what I'm looking for. I went through, yeah, I have this whole process about it. And I essentially developed a framework for succeeding at online dating by being 100% honest and by just framing yourself by putting all the things that are important in an online dating context uh, out in front. So essentially, the marketing portion is can you get them to swipe on you or connect with you or return your message. And then there's sort of like some some qualification process, I guess you could call it in the lingo of sales, where you're going back and forth in the texting and the, the talking, then you arrange for a sales appointment, a date. And then at that date, you then have to, you know, essentially move to the next meeting. And then, you know, sales cycle is kind of long for dating. And then essentially, that's what my process became. So fast forward, I discovered this six months after uh, failing at it. And three months later, I met my wife. So it works. And um, yeah, it worked really well. Uh, so then as uh, 
you know, after, after I kind of explained this to my wife, my wife is like a Disney princess. She just loves love more than anything you've ever met. And like more than anyone, if she met, you should be like, Oh my God, does your wife make your heart flutter? Do you feel butterflies? <laughs> That's, That's how she is all the time. It's amazing. So you, I assume you met her online. On OkCupid. Yeah. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, do you still like, do you post your profile for people to see? Uh, I, I actually do share it with people sometimes. Uh, so because, uh, I would do some, uh, profile reviews and rewrites for friends of ours. So we did it about 10 times and we have three weddings and an engagement and a long-term relationship under our belt out of those 10. Wow, man. So that's, I had no idea. That's awesome. I love yeah. it. <laughs> so like the whole premise was marketing and sales, right? So, um, so anyway, I, I basically, after the, the 10 of those, I was like, crap, I need to share this with people. So I put together an online dating course and that's online now because the thing was, is that even though this is like the most important part of people's life, like people very rarely actually want to pay for it. Um, so like I was selling this uh, service, but like few people wanted to actually pay for it. So I put it online on a course and it makes it a lot lower cost because it doesn't take my actual time to help them. I just built it once and then people can buy it. Hmm. Yeah, I love it, man. Good stuff. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to hijack your this, oh, but I'm, I was just really curious about that. <laughs> yeah, no one's ever asked me about it. So for yeah. those listening, if you're interested, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um. So anyway, yeah, I, I think like marketing and sales is like a really, and, and like I'm not like a, even though I have an MBA and like I've been in business for myself and I have my own business, I'm not like a hardcore capitalist business type person. Like for me, everything is about people. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to do work that I could love. But I still see now the applications of being able to look at things through a certain framework. Like so, so thinking of like economics, the study of scarcity, you can see that in everything, right? So you can see that in terms of, uh, you know, if you're a leader, you can look at the number of slots that are on your team and like use the, the understanding of, um, you know, uh, that there's only a certain number of spots you need to basically put the best people in those spots economic principle, right? Or comparative advantage. You want to put uh, the best players in the role that they're best suited for and outsource the rest or put it on somebody else's plate. Anyway, so I use marketing sales for a lot of different things, including the online dating thing. I think for leadership, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense. But I want to kind of circle back to something that you said about uh, influence and persuasion in sales. And you, you kind of preempted me by um, uh, saying it's not manipulation. And I'm actually, I was actually in the book I'm writing. So the name of my book that I'm writing is called The Lovable Leader. And um, I'm actually writing right now a portion about influence and persuasion, but not manipulation. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I struggle with a lot. And I'm curious how you feel about this, because I feel like the more that I learn about people and I learn about how the human brain receives information and how we make decisions. And the more you learn about all that, it's like you see the matrix and then it's kind of hard to disassociate that when you're trying to motivate somebody to do something you know the team needs, it's hard to determine where the line between persuasion and influence and manipulation actually kicks in. So what would you say is sort of the way that you keep yourself honest about keeping your team aligned towards the goal and interfacing with them in such a way where it's not manipulation and it's all in service of the bigger goal? Well, I think you, you one of the words you said hits on it is the fact that uh i'm always honest i think uh i forget wh who said it to me on my show but they said i you know i always tell the truth it's so much easier because you never have to really remember anything <laughs> and i thought oh yeah it's kind of simplistic way of viewing it i think that's part of it um when it comes to selling in general and and some if 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 you've had everyone has had a a negative sales experience some people will point to maybe buying a car 
or their cell phone bill or, or something along those lines. And, and it gives the profession a really bad rap because they had, they felt like they'd been sold or manipulated in some way, shape or form. So they think about those negative experiences. And when they have a positive sales experience, they don't think of it as a sales experience, right? Then they go, well, yeah, I bought this car. It was a great, you know, whatever. And that's, that's what I think when it comes to persuasion, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's one being a really great listener, having an understanding, asking fantastic questions and even better follow-up questions, right? Listening like a trampoline. You probably read the HBR article, right? Some people say, listen like a sponge. And I'd say, no, you listen like a trampoline, meaning you absorb what they've said. And then you all, you spring back and offer energy back to the person. You don't just absorb it, but you give back as well. So you show you're a deep, active listener offering really quality follow-up questions to get a deeper understanding of where the person is coming from, where they're going, their motivations, their desires. You're truly getting to know them by building a real relationship. My best clients that I work with literally become friends. Is that a good idea? I don't know, but that's just naturally what happens. I don't, I don't see many negatives. I guess it could happen at some point, but we naturally become friends because we genuinely care about one another. Is it weird that they also pay me money? Well, we let other people handle that aspect of it. And I think that, that to me seems to be, a, 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 to me at least an enjoyable way to go about doing work, right? The people that you helped and are now in relationships or getting married, right? You're genuinely helping them. They're paying you money. That I would rather do business that way than to ever feel like I have to manipulate or fleece somebody. I just couldn't really, I'd struggle to sleep at night. And I think uh, I want to work with, I want to buy from those types of people as well, because I'm certainly a consumer uh, in addition to being somebody who has, who has uh, an offering. So I, I guess, I guess it just goes back to, to, to always being honest and to being a really deep active listener and caring about people and trying to build genuine relationships. And that seems to work much better than, than any other way I've, I, I can think of. I find it really refreshing to hear you talk about this because sometimes I feel a little bit like I'm, um, like I drive myself a little bit nuts thinking about these things because I feel like business can be so cold and calculated and uh, dehumanized. And I've always made friends with the people that I work with. And it, it has been challenging at times because there's, you know, you run into issues with boundaries. Um, but the way that you talk about it, you're very matter of fact about it. And I know you have a lot of experience dealing with companies of all different shapes and sizes and have been, you know, in your, your podcast, you're 300 some odd episodes in. So obviously, like you've talked a lot about this, you've, you've spoken with, you know, some of the primary thought leaders on topics like this, you're establishing yourself as one of the primary thought leaders in the space. So it's refreshing to me as someone who's kind of like up and coming and joining into this kind of a world to hear that there is a, a space to talk about things like being honest and compassionate and being an active listener instead of, you know, and, and that all of those things actually belong in business. Um, so one, I just want to thank you for, for doing that. But I think on the other side of it, I want to ask you about what your experience has been like if you ever get pushback about that. You know, one of the things that um, I had an experience in the last several years, I'll anonymize it so that nobody knows who I'm talking about if they are listeners and would know, but uh, I dealt with a company that was just like the worst culture I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, it was like an absolute dumpster fire of awfulness. And, you know, I'm coming in there and I'm like, hey, listen, I can, I can, I was graphing out for them, visualizing here are where all of your problems lie. And they're not, 
things that you can see on a spreadsheet. These are things about how you interact with people and the resources that you provide for your team so that they can give you the things that you need. And I showed it to them and basically like they have no interest or tolerance for it because they just want the sales goal to be hit. Mm-hmm. You know, that whole kind of like, this is just touchy feely stuff kind of mentality. How much have you had to encounter that in the way that you're promoting relationships as, as, a, as a critical point of leadership? How much have you dealt with that and have you dealt with it when that comes up? I had a job leading leaders in corporate America, and uh, the boss who hired me, unfortunately, was let go a few months afterwards. And uh, part of my process of leading leaders um, was I like to schedule one-on-one developmental uh, conversations, these conversations with everybody that was below me on the organizational chart. So there's, you know, directors and managers and individual contributors. So it does take a lot of time. It's an investment, but these one-on-ones are really important to me because I think our role as leaders is to coach for both immediate performance and long-term development. I think leadership is an and job. You must, if you want to be excellent, you must do both. So yes, we do have to perform, we have to achieve, but we also uh, have to help our people reach their long-term developmental goals. At least that's how I, I view it. And that's how I acted in, when I had uh, a job like that. Uh, however, um, I've had pushback, serious pushback from someone above me uh, in the organization when they saw my calendar uh, was filled uh, with these types of meetings um, at certain points in the year, saying, why in the world are you wasting your time doing that? That is HR's job. Your job is to hit the number. And I said, that is my job is to hit the number and to help my people develop. Um, that's the right way to behave. That's what we should do. That's our responsibility. That's our job. We all should be doing this. And, uh, we unfortunately had to agree to disagree and eventually we no longer work together. And that is a bummer. And, uh, I know that person still thinks they're right and I am dead certain that I am right. Um, and that's, that's just unfortunate, but I, uh, I think, again, everybody listening probably has unfortunately worked for somebody like that. Uh, and that's just not the way I view it. Um, I, for, you know, I learned this directly through the course of um, when my dad turned 60 years old, I wanted to get him a really memorable gift because he's the ultimate mentor for me in my life. And so what I did was I reached out to about 40 of um, his friends and colleagues, people who, um, uh, worked for him, worked with, worked, he worked for all throughout his career. And I asked them to simply tell me, uh, memories of working with him. He's now retired and, and is fortunately is, a, a big mentor for me still, but plays a lot of golf and has fun. But anyway, uh, I asked them to, to, to share their thoughts on him and I would, and I was going to put it together as a book and then give it to him on his birthday when he turned 60 and I was flooded, I mean flooded with these massively long notes from people from all throughout the organization that he worked of how much he cared and helped them. And these are people above him, beside him, below them, anyone you could think of. 
And what a gift. I mean, what a serious gift for me to receive on a regular basis. Another email would pop up with a note about my dad and how impactful he was in their life. And it, and all it, it was such an inspiration and motivation for me to say, wow, I would love to have this type of impact on people. My dad truly, truly changed people's lives one at a time. That's the right way to do it. And, uh, and so that, I, I've been motivated by him my entire life, but certainly that was a moment. That was a moment for me to say, this is the correct way to behave and you should do it. You can do it. And if somebody tells you that you don't have enough time, they flat out are wrong. Um, and so I, I, I would, I would urge people, leaders listening that wouldn't, isn't the world a better place if we all think that way, you know, isn't it? And so I think that that is the way that I work to behave and it's not easy. It definitely takes time. It's a lot harder when you care. Uh, but, uh, I think it's, it's a more worthy way to go about, uh, leading uh, people is, is to act in that manner. Yeah, man. And, and just so you know, I'm on your side on that. Screw that guy. <laughs> uh, but I, I always looked at it as like, you know, if you look at it, accomplishing goals as one thing, you look at it in isolation, even if you were to look at it as isolated from the relationships with your team and helping them grow, I think there's ample evidence to show that, especially if you consider the cost of uh, turnover, and you consider the cost of retraining people, and you consider all of these other factors that go along with if you lose a team member because you didn't build a relationship with them, you didn't help them grow, that focusing on growing and building your people and building relationships with them does lead to the better results. Like it seems like there's a symbiotic relationship there. So uh, I'm a hundred percent behind that. And, and the whole, like, isn't it just the, the right way to, to be? And doesn't it feel better that way? You know, I lean on that a lot just because I, I feel like work gets a bad rap. And um, that's kind of one of the reasons why I want to write my book is I feel like, Maybe it was just growing up watching too much 80s and 90s stand-up comedy, but like work, like like my wife is a punchline, right? Like we talk about it like it's this thing you're supposed to hate. And I think if we spent more time kind of embracing what, what you've been talking about this whole time, which is, you know, how do you grow your people while also keeping performance in mind? But how do you take that time and that emotional energy to connect with people? If we did more of that, wouldn't that lead to better results? And, and I completely agree. I think that is the way to go. Right, but it's harder and it's more longer term way to, to go. And a lot of the, 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 the answers or what people want are shorter term immediate results. And delayed gratification is powerful. And if you, if you are uh, willing and able to sometimes delay that, uh, I think long term, you're going to be much better off. I mean, look at, so look at the really successful companies out there, right? The CEO of Shopify, Toby, just had a long tweet thread about this recently. Uh, about how the culture that they've they've intentionally built at Shopify was all about the things we're talking about, and now look what's happened to them. Right? They they've had massive growth, and it's actually happened rather quickly in the grand scheme of things, because it was embedded from the beginning to care about people, to really think about them, to try to help them, and to build a type of culture where people legitimately want to come into work every day. Um, and, and on top of that, it's just a better way to live. So I mean, it. it it, it, it doesn't, it, it just really doesn't make sense to do it any other way. Yeah, man. Well, I've heard you talk about your, your dad a lot and mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you did. Um, again, for a number of reasons, one, it's, it's profoundly validating for me because literally the first chapter of my book is about my parents. 
Because I think as a leader, we look to our very first sources of leadership in our lives, which is often our parents. And that's going to inform us one way or another. If we have, you know, aggressive, abusive type parents, or if we have like loving, coddling type parents, that's going to affect you. That could affect you in one of two ways, really. You can go like embrace it, or you can run away from it. And you've talked a lot about your your father. And uh, my dad has always been an amazing inspiration for me. And a lot of my leadership philosophy is really, um, is is baked out of the the relationship that I have with my dad. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that because it sounds like that's a really big part of what inspired you to kind of go this route and to shape yourself as a leader the way that you do. What are some of kind of the key, if you had to kind of boil it down to like the 10 commandments of your dad or like the top three or top five things or whatever that you kind of see as, as what made him special as a leader and what made him memorable, what would you kind of boil those things down to? Uh, well, f- first, it's, it's definitely both my mom and my dad. So they, they first were the model. I think they, they're the model for my brothers and I to see what it's like to have an excellent marriage. And now my two brothers and, and I, I think all three of us have really, really great marriages. And, and that I, I think stems from my parents, first and foremost. Um, my dad gets a lot a lion's share of, of kind of the limelight in, in that regard of that relationship because he was working and he led a thousand person sales force for a couple of decades and, and has written a couple of books um, about selling. And, I, I, and so I, I would say, first, he's as others focused as it gets. I mean, almost to a fault. Uh, just, just always thinking of how to help other people. I can't tell you how many times routinely somebody would call, uh, at late at night and, uh, sometimes even they would be, they would be crying. They'd be upset. And this is before cell phones. So they would say, Hey, can I talk to your dad? I give him the phone and I sit there and listen to my dad, just patiently listen and try to help somebody. And I would say, what was that all about? He would, he would mention the person's name and just say, you know, they're struggling and I'm just trying to help them. And then he would just kind of go about his business. Uh, like it was, it, like it was just an obvious way to behave that that's what we do. Like we try to help people. That's part of kind of how we are. The, the other part about, I would say both my parents and certainly my dad is that um, his, his whole uh, message People started asking him about, you know, how to how to raise kids that do well in athletics. Um, I, I I played college. Uh, I got a college scholarship and played quarterback and started and played a little bit after college. My younger brother played, was an All American and played for eleven years and won a Super Bowl in the NFL. And so there there he gets started getting asking that asking that asked that question a lot. And he said uh, to me, I think a big deal is that as a, as a leader and as a parent, you got to show up. Your presence is required. And it sounds simplistic, but if, if, if we were asking to go to the batting cages late at night, he'd be the first person there putting the coins in the machine. If we wanted to shoot free throws uh, at night, he put in lights on our driveway and then rebounded for us. If, if I needed somebody to throw to, he was running routes. Um, it, it it never really dawned on us that he may have just gotten done working a 10, 12 hour day at a really, you know, a, a tough role leading a lot of people. Cause he never said, ah, I can't do that. Or, Hey guys, I'm really tired. I worked hard. Like that never happened once ever. And as a, that, that is a, 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 just a great example for us to, 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 as we move into our own leadership roles as husband, dad, husbands, dads, and leaders in the business world that, 
that's that's the person we try to emulate and try to model uh, because we got a, a, a front row seat on what it's like to do it extremely well. And uh, it is not easy, but uh, he made it look easy. And I think that's what the great ones really do. And, and so we're, we, we try really hard, I think, to, uh, to, to live up to that, knowing that uh, we, we, we never fully will, but we're certainly going to try. Yeah, it sounds a lot like, um, it, to a certain extent, it sounds a little bit like servant leadership. Yeah. Um, the whole concept of like, your, your, or, or as uh, Simon Sinek says, it's about the responsibility to protect those in our care. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole idea of really just taking care of the people that, um, that you know, look up to you and that, um, that are under your care, really. Um, there's, there's a challenge there that I sometimes, I, like I'm noodling around with it in my mind about it, is this kind of like love versus fear dichotomy and the whole, at what point do you feel as though you're being taken advantage of and how do you know where that line is and how do you deal with it? Um, so when we're talking about leadership as a, uh, means of taking care of and helping to grow the people under us. And we're, we're giving so much of ourselves. Like your dad there, you're talking about an example where, you know, 10 hours and he's still coming out and he's giving to you. Now your family, so that's slightly different. But he sounds like the kind of guy that if one of his people called him up, he would probably take that call, right? Yep. So at what point do you have to kind of say, this is enough? Or you know, you need to kind of change the tone of it so that you don't feel like you're being taken advantage of. I don't really even know what my question is here, but it, you kind of get where I'm going with it. There is this line of giving mm-hmm. where it can become a problem and you're not standing enough and standing up enough for the other person's accountability or for, you know, your own boundaries and you're just over giving and potentially giving yourself the, the potential of burnout. So I guess, how do you, how do you handle it? How do you see that? I think it's a really good question. It's a tough line to draw, uh, right? Dr. Henry Kyle writes about boundaries and the importance of them. And, and so I, I get that. Also a big fan of Adam Grant's work. I mean, his book, Give and Take, where he studied the, the success of the, the highest performers and the lowest performers and givers. So there's givers, takers, and matchers. And givers were the highest performers uh, in, in the industries in which they studied. But they also were the lowest performers. And so it's interesting to, to understand uh, when to just give, 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 and when to draw a line or to say, I think somebody else uh, would be better suited to, to handle that. And so one, one of those uh, types of ways to put that into practical use is um, if, if somebody is asking you for something that is just completely, uh, or, or that, that may be on the fringe or the outside of an area where you can help, that um, you steer them in another direction to either somebody else or try to make an introduction for them, knowing that you, maybe you're not the best person to speak to. But if it's somebody that though that is in your care where they're reporting to you and they need you, um, just like just like family, I mean, it, it becomes like family. I, I do think uh, he, my dad had a policy, even though a thousand people were under him in the in the business. He said, if you want to meet with me the answer will always be yes. Um, now, it may not be this week or next week or even this month, but I promise you, if you want to meet face-to-face, in person, we will meet. Um, and I think some people probably didn't think that was a great policy because he certainly uh, spent a lot of time doing that. But again, that's how you kind of uh, live a, a life of, of impact 
um, on others if, if you're willing and open and then you follow through and actually do that. So I'd rather err on that side and then have to pull back. But from my experience and, and witnessing it and trying to emulate and do it myself, um, it can be a very rewarding way to, to operate on a daily basis. Yeah, I love that. And I, I want to touch on a minute and uh, you just made me think a little bit of like, kind of like, what is the purpose of leadership, right? Like, is, is it something bigger, living a life of, of something bigger than just did we meet our quarterly numbers? I want to come back to that. But uh, I've, I've had a note here that I want to, I wanted to come back to, which is about family. So we've talked a little bit about your dad and your mom and your brothers and just family as kind of a concept. And there's a lot of concepts uh, or ideas floating around out there about how you should view your team. And uh, you even brought up the concept of like making friends at work, right? And there, you know, Reed um, Hastings of Netflix famously is like very anti seeing his team as a family. Um, Denise Lee Yan, who's been on my podcast a couple times, uh, wrote the book Fusion about uh, branding culture and leadership. And she's brilliant. She's awesome. She wrote a Forbes article where she said she didn't look at it as a family. I also know a couple leaders that run small companies and they see their team as a family. And I've worked with family businesses and they see their, their customers and their team as a family. What's your feeling on how you should be relating to your team? How should you be seeing them? Is there a good model for you to think of? I think it's a little bit of a blend of family, high-performing team, a couple other different types of things. But what's your feeling on kind of seeing your team as more than just, you know, kind of cogs in your machine? I would say they become friends uh, for me. Uh, it's not really a family. It's more of a team. Um, my team's in sports. We become very close. We become friends. My team's in the business world. I think we become very close. I'm still friends with people that have worked for me many years ago. Um, and I, I, I just think, you know, you spend, especially if you work in an office with them, you spend eight to nine, 10 hours a day with somebody. Um, I think it's, it, it's really hard to not develop a real relationship with them, especially if you're having regular conversations, regular one-on-ones. Um, I really try to get to know each person as a whole person. Um, it, it just, I guess I wouldn't say they're I haven't become a friend with all of them, but we certainly develop real relationships where we care for one another um, and are trying to help the other person be successful and help develop them. So I don't know. I never called my team a family. I don't know if I would ever use that terminology because nothing will ever get that tight for me uh, outside of my real family. Um, But, but I would say I certainly have become uh, very good friends with people that I've worked for and that I've worked for me and that I've worked, worked, worked with uh, side by side. Okay. Got it. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about the, the purpose of leadership first, and then I want to kind of shift gears. I want to talk a little bit about some of these tips for people who are moving into that new leadership role. So I, I definitely want us to, to kind of move to that place in a minute, but in terms of looking at leadership as something that serves a purpose. Um, I sometimes struggle with how lofty to get about that um, because I'm, I'm someone who gravitates towards big, ambitious, lofty type goals, world changing type stuff. I mean, my company is called the Superhero Institute. Like it's about saving the world. So for me, I'm always very much about setting big, audacious type goals. And I think about 
people moving into a middle management role, like how big and lofty can you actually think about your goals? And then also, you know, what kind of a legacy can you leave behind? And you look at stories about people like your dad, and it sounds like his life of impact was serious. Like he left an imprint on people to the degree where they're, they're going to take time out of their day to just write you these emails, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of the way that you see leadership and the way that you would advise people to look at leadership, how audacious and lofty do you encourage them to be in looking at what their role is? Or do you see them as more uh, tacticians that can just be a lot better at it by, by understanding a series of, of different things? Okay, I think there's a couple things to hit on there. Um, first, with setting ambitious goals, I'm more of a put a system in place and then consistently work your system of behaviors on a daily basis versus setting a, a, a large goal. Um, goals are, are, are kind of momentary changes, but then you're kind of right back at it versus a, a system is it's just your continuous way of behaving. Um, so that's one, one, one way that I, that I think about that. Um, when it comes to like how big to think as a, as a leader, I, I, I would think actually more as, especially if you're getting promoted to your first leadership role, um, one person at a time, uh, along the lines of, of, of a term used by the founders of Airbnb, which is said is, is to do things in order to scale, you have to do things that don't scale. So there's, these were the guys that were going and actually taking the photographs of each apartment one at a time in order to get a great photography on Airbnb. And for me, I think that's, that's developing one relationship at a time, deep, meaningful relationship with each person and, and, and genuinely caring. Um, uh, that's a big part of, of the job. And uh, I, I guess that's the way that I would encourage someone to look at it is if you try to develop real relationships one at a time, you care, you're thoughtful, you ask good questions. Um, they're, they're, I think the, the, the people that you're going to ask or you're going to push from time to time are going to be much more willing to want to do it uh, than those who just feel like they're a cogs in a machine. And, and one of the big, the big points I write about my book is that compliance can be commanded, but commitment cannot. And I want to help leaders build committed organizations, not compliant ones. If you're compliant to a boss, you will do what they ask and that's it. Uh, And you will do that just long enough until you find a better boss or somewhere better to work versus a committed team or a committed organization where it's I desperately want to follow this person because I believe in them. I care about them. I know they care about me. This is the place where I want to be to do excellent work. And so there's obviously a, a lot to get to within that, but the whole ultimate goal is to help leaders build committed teams and organizations. I love it. Yeah, it's very much in line with the way I think about it. I think when I approach it, I tend to, because of the way I am, I tend to kind of start with like, what's your big lofty ambitious goal? And then, okay, let's back it out and let's look at what your day-to-day framework and system is going to look like. But um, very much in the same way, I look at that if you take the time and energy to build strong relationships and as a leader, if you find a way to ensure that you are eliminating as much of that hierarchy and compliant uh, to use your terminology, that compliance 
sort of mindset where like I have to do it because they're my boss, which it's interesting. You've used the word boss a few times. That's like, that's like nails on a chalkboard to me, that word. <laughs> Sorry. I, no, it's okay. It's not your fault. It's just that when I hear the word boss, I literally have no positive associations to it. I don't even believe there's such a thing as a good boss because a, to me, boss is just, um, it, it is just a pure, it's, it's like a, it's a pejorative word as opposed to like, I see it as like you have basically managers, mentors, leaders, and bosses and mm -hmm. bosses to me are just like, they're always like the people who have their ego in the way they want to let you know that, that they're in charge and they're going to make mountains out of molehills and they're going to have a billion different. So it's just funny that like you've used it a couple, you even used it once in like a positive way. And I was like, I don't even understand what that means. <laughs> no, I got, I got it. I, I, I understand. I, I have, I've, I guess I haven't thought of it that way, but I get it now. I, I have worked for some incredible bosses, though, and, and they were great leaders, so I, I get it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, on that point, uh, how much would you say from just your own personal journey around leadership, would you say, how, if you were to give me like a ratio, you know, one-to-one, -one, whatever it is, uh, how much have you learned from great leaders versus bad bosses? <laughs> when I first uh, got a job uh, in that uh, – telephonic sales rep uh, role, my, the VP of sales, uh, I met with him and asked some questions. And, and one of the, his parting pieces of advice to me was, I want you to do something. I want you to keep a notebook on one side of the ledger. I want you to write all of the fantastic actions that your manager does. And on the other side, I want you to write everything down that they do that is not helpful or is bad. Because uh, one day, I believe you had the potential to be uh, a manager, and uh, you quickly can forget what it's like to be a sales uh, professional, sales rep, an individual contributor. And I want you to be able to look at your notebook when you get that role, so that it will, will remind you of what it was like to be in that position for now the people that you are leading. And I did that. I still do it. Uh, I've transferred it now. It's an electronic document. And... Uh, Again, these, these people were not terrible bosses, but the right side, which was the, the negative side, was in, in some cases significantly more filled out than the left side. And so I do absolutely believe you can learn from both. I certainly have learned from both. But when I also self-reflect and analyze on my actions as a first-time manager, there would be a lot on that right-hand column. Still, despite the fact that I was already doing that exercise leading into getting that first leadership role. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm certain people who work for me have some of those things to say. They know it. I've written a lot about it in my book. But, um, but also the fact that, you know, I'm fortunate to have learned from uh, both the, the, the great that has been done as well as the, the, the bad, both from, from myself as well as others I've, uh, I've worked alongside and worked with. That's awesome. Is that in your book by any chance? What's that? The, the whole like yeah. left side, right side thing. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. I'm going to have to just, I'm going to reference it in my book and, and point people to buy your book too. I, it's such a great idea. My, so the beginning of my book I told you, I talk a little bit about my family and then the very next chapter is the difference between bosses and leaders. And I go through all the, the crap that I dealt with, with bosses. And I, because I felt like I, I, if I were to do it, it's probably 80, 20 between bad, bad. bosses yeah. and great, and great leaders, because I just saw so many things. And, and part of it is that like, I'm an only child. I'm a brat. I'm an entrepreneur. Like there's just to be a good boss for me, 
Like it's just like it's it's an almost an impossible task. <laughs> but so like if I was actually I was just keeping a mental note. You did a notebook. That's brilliant. Uh, so I'm, by the I way, mean, his name just so it's out there. His name is Doctor Rex Caswell. It's a PhD. He's still a sales leader to this day. He's moved to St. Louis now. But I just had lunch with Rex a week ago. And uh, I love that guy, but that was advice that Rex gave to me, my first sales VP when I got that job. And I've uh, never forgot it. I still have the notebook, the one in writing, and I certainly have uh, now in a Google Doc. But I think um, it was great advice. It was really good advice. I encourage everybody to do it regardless of your current position. Um, it can be very helpful uh, as, as a way to journal. Um, and it was, it was really uh, also... A kind of uh, heartbreaking for myself when I looked down and noticed that I was doing um, literally doing exact things that I'd written down that I didn't like that my boss had done and uh, and, and didn't fully realize it uh, until I had to have some deep self-reflection time which is a whole other area that we can talk about of why that's so important as a leader. Oh, absolutely. The, the end of my book is about um, leadership, self-care and self-assessment. So it's mm -hmm. all about like, okay, what, what happens when, when, when's your book out? I'm 40,000 words into it, uh, which is decent, uh, but there's still a lot left to write. Um, it, I, I started it four years ago on a car ride with my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time. Uh, she had just moved into a new manager role, and I had been managing people for years at that point, and she was asking me different questions about stuff. We were on our way back from Annapolis uh, to Philadelphia, and we got about 20 minutes into a conversation. I was like, I should write a book on this. <laughs> on my Evernote, and I outlined the entire book in the car, and um, and then I got home and I wrote eighteen thousand words at once. And then in the four years after that, I wrote uh, I'm now just over forty two thousand words, I think. So it's still a ways away. This is the year I'm going to make it actually come out. I'm I'm sick to death of myself the fact that I haven't finished this because it's all in my head. Mm -hmm. I just have to write it. Um, but it was a lot of like reorganizing things, and but I, I always knew that there was going to be a part about. Um, how to maintain balance, how to like self-care was going to be a big piece of it because, you know, kind of to your point of looking back at that list of stuff and saying, oh crap, I'm doing some of those. You know, I just got out of a, a leadership role with an agency. I had my own agency and my agency got acquired and then I was in a leadership role in this new agency. And, you know, I pride myself on my leadership. It's something, it's, it's a major passion of mine. I spend a lot of time reading about it, a lot of time thinking about it, a lot of time growing and trying to help my people grow into leaders. But I know that there's a handful of things that I would tell other people to do. And I know for a fact that I was not doing them. And like the amount of beating myself up that I would do over that, the, the, the self critique over that, it, it can be really challenging. And then being able to move past that and forgive yourself and being able to learn and grow from that is, is, a, is, a, that is a tall task sometimes. <laughs> I'm with you 100%. Uh, you right? know, it, you're completely right. But congrats on setting that uh, the, the wheels in motion to get to your book finished this year, man. It's awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Well, one of the things was I, I didn't know who I was writing it for, for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mean, I knew I was writing it for my wife to a certain extent, you know, she's still in the leadership role and, and man, she is just killing it. She's so good at it. Um, she work at a big company or what's her she setup? We work. Um, and she is just, for we work. So, yeah, she works. God, for they've been in the news a lot this year. They have, and I, I will not go into uh, too much. I will just say it. She's a community manager, and she's amazing at it. Nice. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, she's like a Disney princess. So everybody loves her. So the title, the lovable leader, that's her. Like she's the lovable leader. Everybody loves her, and and she's just so easy to work with. And and when she has to have difficult conversations with people, she goes into it already. Everybody wants her to win. 
like her people want her to win in a difficult conversation. So she just has to be able to go into it and keep herself with any of the frustrations that she may be going into it in a very measured way and learning how to come out of it in a productive way. And I help to give her that perspective. So a lot of what I've been writing in the book comes from just coaching her and then just my own things that I've had in my own leadership work, um, you know, and then also coaching clients and things like that. Huh. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it has been a, uh, an arduous journey to get here to the 40,000 words, but I mean, 40,000 words, nothing to sneeze at. And I'm, I'm very proud of the work that's in here, but man, I got to get this thing across the finish mm-hmm. line. So anyway, I was saying, I didn't know who I was writing it for. And then I realized like, who actually needs this? Because uh, anytime I've worked with like upper level leaders, like they, they like already know who they are, or at least they think they do. So, and they don't want, and, and I still have the age thing going for me. I'm 39. I'm going to be 40 this year. So there's still a, a, a large constituency that will not quite take me seriously. Uh, because I just haven't had enough time in, in, in the workforce mm-hmm. and there are, uh, you know, I've managed teams, but you know, whatever. Um, so I realized that who actually needs this are the people that just move into the new role. And I, I'm glad that you've written a book for that as well. I'd be happy to, to be able to one day say that I'm being bundled with your book for new leaders. Yeah, that'd be awesome. You know what I mean? Because we need that. Yeah. I see you know, uh, without getting into specifics of it, but I've seen people move in to leadership roles that have absolutely no business being in a leadership role. But if they're going to be there, they should at least be given the few basic things that are going to help them to not just implode the company with their, you know, letting their ego get in the way or not knowing how to resolve a conflict or not being able to set goals and hold people accountable or have a conflict resolution conversation. Like these are big things that people moving into these roles have absolutely no business doing without any training. And what's going to happen is they're going to jump right into it and it's going to fall apart. Um, that said, the note that I wanted to come back to. Okay. Uh, so you wrote a book about people moving into a new leadership role. This is what I want to talk about with you now. Um, let's talk about leading up and leading sideways because I think we'll get to leading your team, but like leading when you have to lead your manager or you have to lead one of your peers I think can actually be one of the most difficult things for people moving into a new leadership role. And it's something that I've seen in, in people that I coach is, you know, you're at the same level as somebody else and they're messing up. How do you tell them or how do you help them to grow into their role without, um, without damaging their ego or, or causing defensiveness? So what are some of the things that you would recommend or that you talk about or you work with when it comes to new managers in this role and their need to, you know, and, and to sell as human, a lot of times uh, that he was talking about, you need to sell upward, right? You need to sell your idea to your managers. What are some of the things that you would kind of refer back to when we're talking about leading upward or leading sideways? Yeah, I, I talked to Robert Greene a lot about this. Right? He wrote 48 Laws of Power. And, what's that? You've talked to Robert Greene? Yeah. So I had him on my show a few times. Um, I'd love to have him on my yeah, show. Yeah. Just- here right now, I would love it if you connect me because right. the laws of human nature is like the Bible of humanity. Yeah, yeah, uh, agreed. So one of the things we talked about this very aspect of um, when specifically, which is never outshine the master. So uh, you'll have various leaders you'll work for. I'm, 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 I'm hesitating saying the word boss anymore on the rest of this podcast, but you'll have various leaders that you work for, and some of them. Um, may be uh, uh, if they have an ego or insecure and this hotshot learning leader type person now is working 
for them and they have good ideas that are helpful, it could backfire. Uh, it has, it, I've had that happen because I forgot that, that rule of life, uh, depending on the person. Now, I've also worked for very secure, very confident bosses who shined bright lights on me and wanted me to, to, to share everything. And, and that's a much more enjoyable place. But I, I think that's actually, um, unfortunately, is, is probably not the majority. So think about that rule. Uh, that is a rule of life. Um, to, to be careful and understand the people that you are dealing with. If you have the insecure leader who lacks confidence and, and has a big ego, do not, do never outshine them. You cannot do that if you want to continue working there uh, and if you want to have a decent relationship. So that's a big part. Um, so if I had an idea or something, I would try to have more of a conversation about the idea, uh, bounce it back and forth, and then it became our idea not my idea. And if it was ours or even better theirs, then that was a better way to move. Because um, remember, if you choose to work uh, at a, a really any company where you're going to work for somebody else, or you're going to have a boss, um, forgive me for, for using that bad word, but if you're going to work in a place like that, part of your job is to help make their life easier. That's why it's it, it just part of the deal. And so if you want to continue having a, a, a decent, uh, happy life, uh, part of what you, you have to think about is how to make their life easier. Um, so uh, that, was, that was always my approach. It was like, how can I add value? So that the, what came first to me was the people that reported to me and what came second and was my boss. But sometimes that, that was very close because my boss needed uh, me to do something and they valued the, the work that I would do. And so I, I tried to, to, to do it for them. Um, that's a big part of managing up. I think another aspect of managing up is just how to communicate on behalf of your team, uh, how to understand how to be concise, how to speak at a zoomed out 30,000 foot level, and then you know, use executive type summaries and then be able to zoom in on specific issues or problems and share specifically how your boss could help solve the problem and then make sure they are the hero that solves the problem. Um, th those are, that's part of the role if you have issues going on with your team. And every team that you lead at some point is obviously going to have issues and problems that need to be solved. And sometimes you need to go above yourself in order to get help, whether it's uh, funding or more support, whatever it may be, or, the, or you need other people within the organization that your boss could get to better than you. Um, th that those are some of the ways that I, I, I learned to handle those situations. I definitely made mistakes and didn't realize that initially though. And that, that in turn hurt the people that were most important, which the people who reported to me. Got it. Got it. I mean, I think it, it, it's similar the, uh, to, to leading your team is you have to kind of have the empathy for the situation and understand where that person's coming from mm -hmm. kind of what their, the, you know, I guess what their hangups or pain points are, where they're coming from, and you want to do it in a non-threatening way so that you get the best outcome from it. So it, it seems to make a lot of sense there. Yeah, 100%. So I, I love the way that you have your book laid out, um, specifically because I feel like it, it's laid out like a straightforward handbook to a certain extent. Like it's, it's a very natural progression. Uh, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to read the, the kind of headings of the parts here. It, yeah. But, uh, lead yourself, build your team, and then lead your team as, you know, kind of the progression of it, which I think makes a lot of sense. You know, you have somebody walking into their first promotion, they're becoming a, a manager for the first time. 
and I guess step one is like, okay, so what are you going to do? Like, it's time for some self-awareness. You got to start thinking about like who you're going to be, what do you need to learn? What do you need to, what's the mindset you need to have all these sort of things. Uh, and you and I go through a lot of the, the similar kind of flow of things there, but um, I want to walk through a little bit if, you, if you're willing to just kind of imagine we're talking we have on the line right now somebody who is listening in and they can't, their, their microphone is muted, but they're a brand new leader. Kind of walk through a little bit uh, in, in very general terms. I'm still obviously uh, encouraging everyone to go and pick up a copy of the book if you're a brand new leader uh, and probably even if you're an existing leader just for some context. But um, let's walk through the process a little bit. So the person on the line with us, they just got promoted into a management role. It's their first thing. What's kind of some of the first questions you might ask them, some of the things you might give them to think about? Um, inquiry that they might do for themselves to think about what their strengths and weaknesses are, kind of where's your starting point typically? Before you think about the what or even the why, you, I would argue you need to think about the who. Um, who are the members of your team? Uh, analyze who's currently on the team or if you're building the team. Uh, do a deep analysis of the qualities that you value most and then how to identify those qualities accurately in the interview process, which is, a, which is tough. It's, it's very hard. But if you get the who right, it takes care of just about everything. And if you get it wrong, you're going to get fired. Um, that's just the way it works. And so uh, having uh, really getting clear on what you value is critical. I found I go and help companies at times when they're hiring for positions and I'll say, okay, um, well, walk me through your current process uh, when you interview or when you hire somebody. And I'm amazed that there are wildly different views on what is valued by people who work directly together. Um, and they haven't taken the time to document exactly what they value. And then they haven't taken the time to document the process to help find those people to ask the specific questions that are uncover that will help uncover the qualities that uh, exist in people uh, to make sure that there is that match. Um, and so that that's really important. And you won't necessarily know exactly the qualities you want, you, you'll start describing yourself is what certainly what I did. So you do need to reach out to mentors that you trust, to those who have come before you that have done what you want to do and ask for some help. What, uh, what do you think I should be looking for and see how that meshes with your current viewpoint? What are some of the questions you ask? How do you uncover if somebody ha possesses these qualities? What, what can I, I do uh, to really increase my odds of hiring great people? Um, that is the first area I would start with when it comes to building your team with the second section of my book is that it's all about the who and the people that you surround yourself with. So for a lot of new leaders, new managers, they're coming into a team that's already assembled and they may not get the chance to build that team around them. So I think a lot of times it's, it's how do you move into that new leadership role when you used to be somebody's peer how do you establish the working relationship when it used to be something completely different? Um, so even thinking about the who seems like it's a much more complex issue when there's not open slots for you to fill with kind of quote unquote your people or the people that you team that you need when you're dealing with a team that you currently have and maybe you think you need uh, a couple different players to, to really round out the team and make it the most functional, but you're kind of stuck with the team that you have. How do you how do you suggest that a new leader deals with something like that? Because 
oftentimes, you know, you, you mentioned that your first role, you were in your late twenties, right? Mm-hmm. Come into a role where maybe you're managing people who are in their late thirties, early forties, like that can be a real challenge. How do you suggest dealing with something like that? Yeah, I was, I, I became the manager of a team that I was previously on. So they were my peers. And then the very next day, you know, as I got the job, uh, I was, I was, they were now reporting to me on the organizational chart. And uh, I did have some open positions, uh, though. So I had a combination of inheriting the, my former teammates as well as hiring. Um, and I just think it's, it's critical that at that point to go on a listening tour, to understand where each person is at, at an individual level, to get to know them uh, on a deeper level. Uh, they need to get to know you on a different level. Uh, they were your peer and now uh, they're working for you. Uh, and, and, and they view, view, view you in that capacity. Also understand, uh, and this is something that I missed early on, understand the, the power that your title gives you. And that sounds really bad when you phrase it that way, but I'll, I'll explain further. One of the aspects that I, I said uh, when, I, when I became a manager was, hey, I want to have really open dialogue. And when I offer up a viewpoint, I want you to have the freedom to disagree with me and tell me um, if you have a different idea or a potentially better option. I, I want to have wide openness. And so I remember at the beginning of this, I would, I would say something and I'd say, does that sound good? Everybody good? And, and they would be like, yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. And fortunately, some of my leaders on the team had the guts to come to me and pull me aside after a meeting when I did this a few times and say, hey, man not everybody's on the same page here. I go, well, what are you talking about? And they, they'd say, they don't agree with you or think that they think that's a bad idea. And I said, no, they don't. They just nodded and said, yeah, they're all, they're all on board, man. Didn't you see them? And he said, dude, you don't understand that they've had really bad experiences in their past working life disagreeing with a boss, especially publicly in a meeting like that. They will never no matter what you say, no matter who you are, or who you think you are, they will never disagree with a boss like in that setting. So and I, I go, I don't look at myself as their boss. I look at myself as a, I, like, we're colleagues. We're in this together. We're working together. And he said, that's not how they look at it. So I really had to get a better understanding of the perspective of how people now viewed me differently, even though I didn't view myself any differently. I wanted to be a humble servant leader. And I felt like I was, but, but people just like when you date somebody, they have a previous relationship and there are probably parts of their previous relationship that weren't good. If, if the relationship was great, they would still be in it. And so they have these kind of embedded feelings in ways they're going to react to situations based on their prior relationships with a boss in some cases where it didn't go well for one, one way or other. And they're going to bring that into their new relationship with you. And you have to understand that because of your title, that that's part of the deal. And so it just takes time. It took, took much more time to develop what I thought could be this immediate culture. It's just not the way it works. It took more time to develop true, lasting, trusting relationships because people in the past that had worked on my team perhaps had been burned or didn't go as well with somebody else. And now they were projecting that onto me because I was in that position. And I, I just, I did not realize that at all. I didn't think that I didn't, I, I thought, well, no, you know, I'm, that's not me. And, uh, and it, it just so happened that though it didn't, it wasn't about me. It was about them and how they thought. And, and I did a poor job of understanding that initially 
which got better over time. But uh, I, I did, that was one thing I never thought of when I got promoted. I never had any, it didn't even enter my mind that that could be something that would happen. And it was a, it slapped me right in the face. Yeah. And when you said, um, uh, like understand the power of your title, uh, I was thinking that that's kind of where you were going to go, but you actually went in a, a, a slightly, I don't want to say a more negative way. I just, I, I think understanding that along with your title comes a whole bunch of bags that you have no control over. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting point that I hadn't quite considered. When you said, you know, when I thought you said, uh, when you said, um, you know, understanding that the power of your title, I thought you were going to say that like, you don't need to reinforce it. You can just have these conversations. But I think what you're talking about is actually a much more interesting point to to consider is that for all of the things that you want to do as a leader, you have to understand that there's all of these other aspects and baggage that people bring with them that you have no control over and that you're going to potentially have to overcome. You're not starting from like ground zero with people. You're starting with all of the previous experiences they've had. And I think especially for a new leader, and actually I've, you know, I've been doing this a while. That's something I hadn't really considered is how much people bring into it that had nothing to do with me. Right. Exactly right. And I, I didn't either, man, and messed it up uh, multiple times. And it took that's, – that's, that's why in some cases experience is very valuable. And, and also – it was very helpful to have a few leaders who had the guts to stand up and come and tell me one at one on one, Hey man, this is what's, this is what's going on. You need to think about this. And I thought, uh, thank you. I mean, I was very grateful. I'm so friends with, uh, I remember that. I remember that conversation and I'm very, I'm, we're still good friends to this day. We haven't worked together in years. And because I just, I would have never thought of that. I, I would have kept going like, Oh no, we're good to go. Nobody disagrees. We're all good yet that that wasn't the case and so it did take some time and effort and some diligent thought um and 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 some compassion to understand the places that each person was coming from yeah and it's kind of similar to that is that's sort of just understanding that you have to accept that you can't control everything and that like right. not everything is going to go your way that that's been probably one of the hardest things for me in my role as a leader is is the realization that I cannot fix everything. I cannot make everyone like me. I cannot make everyone listen to me. I cannot make everyone uh, give me feedback when I invite it. You know, just, there's just so many things that you can't do um, sometimes. And you can't sometimes get somebody to actually take ownership and accountability over their work. And you eventually get to a point where you have to make the decision whether or not you're going to keep someone. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about that especially for new leaders, this can be a really, really difficult thing because I feel like the, in my earlier time as a leader, I was a lot, I was a lot more quick to think like, well, this just isn't going to work out. Like kind of cut, cut and run quickly. And over time I felt like, okay, well, you know, I can work on this. I see a little bit more that there's something that maybe I missed or there's a communication gap or something like that. But I think a lot of people, when they first get into the new management role, they, um, you know, they're quick to say, okay, I got to get this person off my team or they just don't get along with me or whatever. And they don't see their own sort of shortcomings that may have led to that. How do you determine, how would you tell a new manager how to figure out when it's time to kind of cut and run and hit eject versus when it's uh, maybe something they just need to reevaluate and think about how they could approach it differently? Uh, I think... (laughs) I don't want to like name names. I think if you find yourself working for someone that that doesn't have integrity or ethics or morals or cheats, yeah. it's time to go. Um, yeah. 
that it, it seems obvious, but also, I mean, it still takes work. Like you have a good position, you like it, you, especially if you have a team that you, you like and you enjoy, it's really hard. It's really hard to do that. And as well as you have, uh, let's say you have a family and a house and cars and kids. I mean, those are expenses that you're responsible for uh, as well to take care of a family. Um, but I do think it's time to, again, that, that, that's, that's that compliant culture, right? And, and I've worked in one of those. And, and what I did was I, I, I did work hard and I tried to serve my people. But um, I was, at that point, I was uh, looking to eject. And I even had people on my team coming to me saying, I don't know how you are continuing to work for this person. You guys are complete opposites. Um, how is that going to work? And, 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 and they were right. They knew it. I mean, it, it, and, it, and ultimately it, it didn't work. And, and I think part of that is, um, you know, they're just common decency when it comes to being honest and, and, and being a, a human being that cares about people. Um, if you don't have that, it's it, to me, it's it's kind of eject time. Uh, but certainly, you're going to comply until you find something that um, is there because priority number one, at least for most people, um, is is taking care of your family, um, and that's that's how I operated in that manner. Yeah, well, I, I want to ask it from a slightly different perspective because what I meant by the question, I, I probably phrased it uh, funny, but if you're the new manager and you have somebody who's working for you oh, okay. and there's friction and you're not getting along, how do you kind of assess whether or not this is something that's fixable or if it's something that you need to just be done with? Well, I don't think uh, any two situations are alike. Um, I've um, unfortunately had to fire, you know, a number of people in, in, in my career. Um, again, if, if, if there's, you know, ethical things, they're cheating or stealing, then, then it's pretty easy. That's an um, easy one, yeah. those, those are easy. Um, but in a performance-based culture, which are ones that I've worked in, um, I think there's regular dialogue happening, regular one-on-ones. It should never be a surprise when you put somebody on a performance plan. It should certainly never be a surprise when you fire somebody for performance. If, if it's a surprise to them, then you've done a very poor job of communicating. There should be regular documentation. Um, and if, the, and if, if the person just, uh, refuses to take ownership or to work together with you to try to improve, eventually they're not gonna, they're not gonna, uh, be able to achieve the levels of performance and it's a disservice to the rest of your team. Um, and if you are a leader who believes in excellence and having high standards and expecting people to perform at high levels, yet you're letting people hang around for extended periods of time not performing, your team, your high performers will lose respect for you and will probably eventually start looking for another place to work. And I, I had that happen where I waited to fire somebody because I felt bad about their personal situation, that they were the breadwinner as a, as a single mom for their family. And they were not performing for an extended period of time, including I had their on a performance plan. And I waited and waited and waited and eventually uh did it and the rest of my team came to me saying you know what what took you so long are you afraid to make tough decisions and man like that was a punch to the gut um and so uh, uh if, if if you realize that that's the place that you're in and you've set a performance plan in place then 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 live by it and honor it uh, including honoring it when, when it means it's time to, to make a move. And, um, but that's the worst part, man. That is the worst, worst part about, uh, 
uh, being in a, a leadership role is when you have to fire somebody. And uh, that's why it is not for everyone. And if you choose to be a leader, unfortunately, that's going to be part of the job that uh, you will have to do if you do it long enough. Yeah, that's a heartbreaking one because I mean, if I was in that position, I would probably be in, I would probably do the almost exact same thing. Um, you know, having been in, in maybe not the exact same situation, but uh, in other situations, I've, I've always tried to, if I had to fire someone, I was trying to figure out, can I make introductions for them? Can I try and help ease their transition? Mm -hmm. uh, but if it was like a single mom, two kids, sole breadwinner, I, I, if my team came to me and were like, what took you so long? I'd be like, um, are you like heartless? Like, <laughs> like yeah. it took you so long here. Like, did it affect your work? Maybe, but like, we're good people. That's why we did. Anyway. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's like, that's kind of a heartbreaking one. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in, in my book, one of the things I say is um, I define leadership in this way. I say leadership is the act of setting important goals, supporting it with strategy and implementing it as a team with effective communication. It's about getting people from one place to another and dealing with whatever obstacles and challenges show up along the way. Try to boil it down and make it something simple, right? So essentially, you're a leader if people are willing to follow you. And the role of leader requires you to essentially get people to somewhere and you need to be able to manage the communication obstacles along the way. So as you think about moving somebody into a new management role, if you had to boil it down into a couple very key big things, I know you have your chapter and part headings for this, but um, I look at some of the big things as basically goals, strategy, and planning and communication and team management are like the, the kind of the big things, uh, as well as, you know, I guess, conflict, uh, dealing with conflict. What would you say are sort of the, the key things that you would tell, especially a new manager to be focused on in this, you know, initial getting used to the role of being in charge of other people? Um, so get, getting to know them is a big part of it, getting to understand and understand the people that are on uh, your team. So that's part of the who, uh, that is a, an area I would start. Um, also, uh, don't try to do it alone. Uh, work to build, if you haven't already, your personal board of advisors that you can have uh, a, a, a people in place to go to. Uh, with questions on a regular basis, make get build that team for you early, uh, because you're going to have regular in the moment aspects happening that uh, others have probably gone through and can offer you useful advice and be very diligent and careful about who those people are, that they've they've done what you want to do and you really respect them and they're willing to be brutally honest with you. That's part of it too. Um, I, I certainly like you believe in the. the developing the, the, the power of, of being able to paint a vividly clear message of the overall goal of the organization you're in and then telling them specifically how their role applies to that big uh, goal of the company. Uh, so if the company says we need whatever, if, if you just use numbers, a, a hundred million, this is how we specifically impact that. And this is exactly how you do that. This is how we do that together so that they have a, a very clear understanding of, of, of what their role is. And then be vividly clear in my messaging as well to say, these are the expectations that we have for one another. Let's make sure they're out. They're out there in the open. We can discuss them uh, openly. Uh, and then I would, and then I would also share some of the I guess, logistical aspects of leading that this is how we're going to operate together. This is the rhythm that we're going to be in. This is how we're going to talk. This is how we're going to communicate. This is how we're going to work so that they have an understanding. Because really 
when people, especially they get a new boss or a new leader, they, they fear change and they fear uncertainty. And so I try to alleviate some of that uncertainty as quickly as possible with the team so that some of that fear can go away. So then we can start building a trusting real relationship. Um, and, uh, for me, the, the, the most impactful and effective leaders have done a good job at, at that with me as well. Awesome, man. Well, last thing I want to end on is, um, I'm a huge fan of like frameworks and, you know, easy to follow simple sayings and things like that. I think it, it helps to make things easier. One of my favorites is, um, when, when I'm coaching people on the art of leadership, I'd say the one that I probably give people more than anything else, and I've found it's the most useful, especially with new leaders, is what I call sitting on the same side of the table. It's this idea of if you're sitting across from someone, you have sort of an adversarial relationship, whereas if you're sitting on the same side of the table, you're both looking in the same direction. You're talking about where we're going together and what we're both looking at. So I use that as a model for people who are in new leadership roles when they're dealing with a situation where maybe they've got somebody who's being insubordinate or maybe they didn't uh, meet expectations or whatever, that the the model of how they're going to be approaching it is by sitting on the same side of the table. It's been very effective. I like it. Works really well for me. I've given it to a lot of people. Uh, kind of point I want to end on before I give you the chance to tell people where they can go and learn more about you and and buy your book and and listen to your podcast and all that is, do you have any short, easy to follow sort of things that you you kind of tell to people that they're easy to remember, shorthands for kind of bigger concepts? Uh, well, I learned this from my dad. My, my success can only follow the success of my people. Um, and my success can only follow the success of my customers. And I think that's been a, a an ethos of our family that the way we, we live, if, if for the people that we are serving, supporting, leading, um, that, that our, our success follows theirs. And if, if you make it your life's kind of mission to, uh, help others be successful, um, it naturally seems to work itself out that you then also become successful. Um, but that's not even part of the way you think about it, that it's just a, 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 a consistent way of behaving on a daily basis that I'm always going to be focused on uh, how I can help this specific person that I'm talking to or working with at this time. Um, and, and then act in that manner. And if you just consistently are, are behaving that way, good things seem to happen. And I don't know if you call that karma or what, but I would just call it just a, a more enjoyable way to live. And it's, it seemed to work well for the people who act in that manner. Yeah, man. And, and I would also just, um, uh, say that the, the parts inside of the chapters of your book also, I think, function really nicely as, uh, as sort of like shorthand, like preparation is the greatest medicine for fear. And you've got a couple other ones in here that are really awesome. So I would strongly suggest that anybody listening go and pick up a copy of the book. Uh, it is called Welcome to Management by Ryan Hawk, how, the, how to Grow from Top Performer to Excellent Leader. So Ryan, this is the point in the show where I turn it over to you, the guest, to talk a little bit about what you're working on, where people can go and be social with you, where they can connect with you, listen to your podcast, buy your book, give you all of their monies, whatever it is they want to do. Uh, this is the point in the show where you tell them all about it. Awesome, man. Uh, my podcast, The Learning Leader Show, everything can be found at learningleader.com. If you want to uh, talk on social media, Twitter and Instagram, it's RyanHawk12. Um, and if you happen to be listening on your phone, which I know most people are, um, text the word learners 
to 44222, the word learners with an S to 44222. And that's also another way to get everything uh, that I do. Sweet. And I will put all of that in the show notes. So it's nice and easy. So if you're listening on Overcast, you just swipe to the right, you'll see all the show notes. You can probably click right there. Uh, I don't know what it looks like on iTunes because I use Overcast because it's awesome. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, man. Well, listen, it was super awesome having you on the show. I honestly, like, I feel like I could probably talk to you for another like three or four hours, but for those that don't know what time we're recording, it is the evening. <laughs> we both have the families we would love to go and spend time with, but, uh, it was awesome to talk to you. Um, I'm launching another show at some point this year called rogue, uh, which, uh, if you don't know, if I'm not sure if you're a big superhero fan, but rogue is an X-Men character who can steal other people's superpowers, uh, through touch. And my show is basically about being able to acquire other people's superpowers through conversation. Uh, and I have an episode planned for leadership. So I'll be sure to uh, get back in touch with you about it at that point. Um, but yeah, man, let's, uh, let's keep in touch. This was a really fun episode for me. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the, the thoughtful questions. Thanks, man. I, uh, I had a good time with it. And um, I guess I, I, this, I think people should probably tell their friends about it, which I guess would make this show shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy Shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing, shareable.fm, where this podcast is hosted. Do you have a podcast or know someone that has a podcast that you think is particularly, I don't know, shareable? Well, send them to shareable.fm to apply to be on the network. Shows that are selected not only get added to the site and in some cases to the Shareable FM radio podcast, but we also bring together the best tips, tricks, and tactics for promoting your show and growing listenership. And for our headliner and feature shows, we provide fully outsourced social advertising support. So leave the uh, promotion to us, okay? So give it a look, and if you want to find some new and interesting shows, or if you just want additional exposure for your own show, or know someone who would benefit, please let them know about it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Shareable. I sincerely appreciate it, and this show would mean absolutely nothing without you, the listener. So thank you, and I hope to see you back for the next one. Goodbye for now.